Jesus says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is, the, this is God's word. So let's pray briefly. Heavenly Father, you are pleased to humble yourself to speak to us through your word. Would you give us grace that we may not be just mere hearers of your word, but that we would also be doers of your word as well. We need this. Uh, we want this. But we cannot do this apart from your spirit. Lord, would you give us that? In Jesus' name. So many years ago, some of you might know this, might not know this. Many years ago, in New York City, there were many horse races that took place here. All over the city, all in the, in the outer boroughs, there were racetracks, and people from all over, the, all over the country were lured, they were enticed to come here to race horses. Um, and so sports riders, and you would, it makes sense why, right? Because in New York City, uh, the prize money was the best. In New York City, it was the place where they could not only experience great fortune, but experience fame as well. So the sports writers coined a term as a kind of uh, enticement, a lure for people to come, uh, people in that industry to come to New York City. And they said uh, it was something to the effect of come to New York City and in order that you might win the Big Apple. Come to New York City in order that you might win the Big Apple, and of course, we all know what that means, right? The Big Apple is, uh, you know, the, the grand prize. I'm not 100% sure why the Big Apple. Maybe it's because the horses love apples. I don't really know. But the, the name is now synonymous, synonymous with what? It's synonymous with uh, something more. New York City is, of course, known as the Big Apple. And it's not just in one particular industry, but it's in every industry uh, that's here in New York City. The world looks at New York and is enticed, is it lured to come and take a bite out of the apple, take a bite out of life, come here and experience more of what life has to offer. Um, but of course, and so cities, not just New York City, but cities are known as places of temptation. But I think we all know that you don't need to live in a city to be tempted. You know, you could probably say all you need is a smartphone, right? Because smartphones are sources of temptation. Smartphones have been created so that, uh, because they, in a sense, they know us so well, they're created to constantly be prompting us, constantly be tempting us so that we can have greater control of our lives, so that we can uh, have, maximize our time, so we can maximize our pleasure. All of these things, a smartphone in some sense, and I'm not trying to be cynical, a smartphone is a, is a device for temptation. When Steve Jobs, I, I think this is more than folklore, when Steve Jobs was beginning to think about technology, one of the things that appealed to him about technology from what I've read is that it was an, an opportunity to reverse the curse. An opportunity to reverse the curse of Adam. And he's not a Christian, but the curse of Adam was what? That from, from, from Adam and Eve on, labor would now be one of, of tremendous toil and work. And so when Steve Jobs thought about technology, he said, one thing that could be beautiful about technology is that we can make 
work easier. It can be more efficient. It can be more elegant. It can be more beautiful. We can reverse the curse. Now, we can all argue whether or not he actually achieved that. Whether our lives are easier, whether work is easier because of uh, companies like that. But we should also take into consideration what he named the company. What's the logo of that particular company? The name's Apple, of course. And what's the logo? It's, a, it's an apple with a big, old bite. And then and he's commenting on it, right? That there's this persuasion, there's an enticement, there is a temptation about all of our lives that we want something more. But I think what we actually got in, in the attempt to reverse the curse, whether he did it or not, we don't know, is that he amplified the reason for the curse. Inadvertently. There are more opportunities, we're more aware of this, the fact that we're being tempted, persuaded, enticed all day long. You don't have to live in a city to be experience temptation. You don't have to have an iPhone to experience temptation. And you don't have to be a first century Jew living in Palestine to know that your heart is prone to be persuaded towards good things and towards those things that are actually quite uncomfortable, uncomfortable for you. And so what I want to establish as we, as we begin to talk about temptation is not a triumphalistic attitude about it, but a hopeful one. And just to simply to state what the Bible teaches, and that is, is as long as you and I breathe, whether you're a pastor, whether you're exploring faith for the first time, as long as you and I breathe, we will always experience temptation. Varying degrees of temptation. We'll, it'll always be a battle for us. As long as you and I breathe, there will be an enticement or an invitation to a greater good than God actually, uh, than a greater good than God has to offer. Now, temptation in and of itself is not a sin. But it's a process. It's a, it's a step in the process towards sin. So Jesus experienced temptation. He experienced every temptation that you and I might experience, and yet he did it without sin. And so the way to think about temptation is that it's a step in the process towards unbelief. Temptation is a step in a process towards unbelief, unbelieving what God says about himself and unbelieving what, about what God says about you. And that's why Jesus includes this in his prayer so that his disciples, as they work through their understanding of that, that they have a heavenly thought, as they work through that um, that he provides for them their daily bread as they work through the days of kingdom that they're being invited to, that, that, the, that every day they're being shaped by a reality that is more beautiful, more persuasive than any temptation that they're going to face. And so we're always going to live a life of temptation, and we're always going to, in some sense, mishandle the temptations that we face. But what we learn from this is that Christians are called to not succumb to temptation. And we're not to roll over and play dead. We're called to fight. So as we think about this idea of lead me not into temptation, let's ask three questions. Because when you ask questions, it's actually the best way to learn. So let's ask three questions. What is the source of my temptation? 
the source of my temptation, how seriously do I actually, should I take temptation? Right? And is there satisfaction from the things that actually tempt me? So what's the source of my temptation? How seriously, in a world in which we're constantly going to be experiencing temptation, how seriously should I take it? And is there satisfaction from the things that actually tempt me? So first, what is the source of my temptation? The very first, the, the phrase that we're looking at is, um, is lead me not into temptation. Lead me not into, tem into temptation. Excuse me. And when we think about that, scholars, lay people, everybody, when we read this, it's, it's not uncommon to read that and go, am I coming before a God who might lead me into temptation? And I'm asking him not to. Does the God of the Bible, who's known to be a God who leads people, leads people from one circumstance to another, is this a God who actually might lead me into temptation and might lead me into things that are hurtful and harmful? And I think the answer is no. Right? Think about it logically. Would a holy God lead us into unholy and unhelpful circumstances? And I think the answer is no. But it's right to simply... Bring, you know, it's not it's not improper to, to look at that and go, is that what it's saying? But let's let's learn a little Bible lesson here. When we come to a passage in Scripture that might be a little bit opaque, when we come to a passage of Scripture that might at first read cause some challenges. Our ten, our tendency, our temptation, is probably to to not delve any deeper into it. Or maybe to dismiss it, to look at the scriptures and go, this was made by a primitive people. You can't take this seriously. It's full of incongruity. See, there's, that proves it for me, right? But the lesson here is, is the best way to understand uh, more opaque areas of scripture is through scripture. Because this is not the only place that temptation is talked about, right? Temptation is talked about all throughout the Bible. And so a great way to understand the opaque areas is to go to areas where it's crystal clear and then to begin to read those truths into this particular truth. Why? Because although the Scriptures has many different voices, many different authors, excuse me, Scripture has essentially one voice, and that's the voice of God. And so it should always be clearer and harmonious as we as we copy a particular passage. So we're... We interpret scripture through scripture, and one passage, and I could pull up a lot, but one passage which is pretty crystal clear is James. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's expanding on the Lord's Prayer, I think, where he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and he's enticed by his own desires. So therefore you have it. What is the source of our temptation? Well, you know what? It's not. The source of our temptation cannot be a holy God. But what is it? Now we have two passages that tell us. One says the source of our temptation is us. The other says that the source of our temptation is, is an evil one in the world working in opposition towards God. And the storyline of the scripture is that our susceptible hearts who are looking in some sense to be tempted and want to be persuaded away from the truth of our creator and the truths that we find here in the Bible is met and is matched with this evil force that's in the world. Now when we hear 
terms like evil one, Satan, uh, of course those are challenging for us, but there's a more challenging one. And that is, it comes in 1 Corinthians 4. So let's not hold back. Let's go to the most challenging. In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul calls the evil one the God of this world. The God of this world. That Satan has such an impact on this world that in a sense people bow down in their hearts and minds towards this evil one. Jesus picks up on this idea and actually provides it a little bit more nuance. In John 8, he calls Satan the father of lies. And I think if you put these ideas together, what essentially what we're hearing and seeing is that while humans are created in the image of God, humans don't all have the same spiritual father. Hear that. While every human being is created in the image of God, what the text is telling us is that not everybody has the same spiritual father. And Jesus is coming to uh, first century Palestine. He's coming to New York City. He's coming to us. And he's saying, that's why I'm here. He's saying, every human being is created in the image of God. And yet, most, and yet he says, and yet we don't recognize our father, our spiritual father. And I'm here to pronounce him and proclaim him so that you can see him and hear him and to restore your relationship to your true uh, father, to your creator and your father. That's my whole point. That's the whole point of being that's his mission. That's his ministry. He knows the source of our temptation. And he comes to stand in the middle, in between us and the one that's tempting us. And minister the, temptated, to, to, to the, the uh, impulses of temptation that run through our veins, that run through our hearts. I think this language, as challenging as it is, the language of, you know, an evil one is a father of lies. The God of the world. That there's a source of, of, of temptation outside of us and within actually really helps explain the human condition because when we think about our own temptation, I don't know about you, but for me it feels so natural and it feels so unnatural. From a very early age, temptation feels to me like a mother tongue. English feels like a mother tongue to me it's as if from all creation, I was speaking English. Why? Because from a very early age, I took it on. I learned it. I can't separate myself from it. And what the scriptures would teach us is that from a very early age, kind of as a second language, we challenge authority. We test boundaries. <clears throat> we tempt uh, safety, or I'll, I'll say faith for the purpose of the talk. Uh, we believe the lie at the, uh, at the heart of uh, we believe the lie that the world revolves around us. And when we, when we fall into this language, when we live out of this sort of second nature mentality, then we betray ourselves and we betray God. We were in London and there, we found a perfect example of this. We were in a pub in London, and I've never been to London, but in pubs in London, it's a little bit like heaven on earth. You know, it's very relaxing. Uh, the pub we were in, though, was relaxing for, a t relaxing for a time, and then it wasn't because there was this little boy running around, and he was pushing every boundary. He was testing every uh, thing in sight, and he was this beautiful little kid who was, uh, you know, had a, a single mom, and she was doing the very best she could, but this kid was going around, and he was making everybody very nervous. He was climbing up... Uh, 
chairs that were so precarious that even Pascal or our son was getting nervous for him. Uh, he went over to the uh, fire extinguisher, and as you just would naturally do, you would just put your mouth over the, the, the nozzle. Um, he, he was testing every boundary, and nobody was having more fun in that place than he was. So it was very natural for him to do that. Uh, one commentator says this, though, the temptation for those of us who've grown up and have realized that there's this war that takes place within us. We're going to have a greater degree of, of maturity, you might say. Temptation, by its very nature, just simply feels wrong with us. Why? Because God's moral law is written in the heart of every human being. That's, where, that's Romans 1. And when a sim sinful temptation is introduced, our consciences immediately sense it. And so what are we to do? We're just using that illustration. Uh, it's good to have a, a courageous person in your life who is looking after you. It's good to have a mother or father who actually says, I'm spiritually responsible for this person. But it's also good to have a community. And even in that pub, you had total strangers helping this woman and helping her son. Not out of spite, not even out of frustration, but out of compassion and, and care. Jesus initiates this idea, leading not into temptation, not to an individual isolated and alone. He says it into a community of people. And he's saying in some sense, we have a, a heavenly father and you're all brothers, you're all sisters, and you're all responsible for each other. And he's saying, pray to your father because your father in heaven has such control over this tempter as to save us from his power if you call upon. I know that in moments of temptation, the endorphins are rushing. Right? You cannot perhaps hold back. And yet Jesus says, you have a God in heaven who oversees even your temptation. And he is more powerful than the one who's tempted. Than out there and the one in here. Years ago, I asked a, a guy that I, I admire a lot, and we were talking about accountability. And accountability is just simply that, hey, I need you to help me, will you help me, and there's an agreement. And we were in a group and we were talking about accountability, and I said, you know, is it more helpful to have an accountability partner with somebody that you fear, rather than an accountability partner that you enjoy or like? Because they could be easily manipulated. And he said this to me, he said, ultimately your willingness to fight temptation must come from the God from God who is leading you to see how seriously you take your temptation. Because of the sources, because the source of temptation that leads you to sin is you. At least, he said, of the two, you're the one that you can be responsible for. So, what's the source of your temptation? Who is your spiritual father? Do you know who you can turn to? The second thing, the question that we should ask is how seriously do you take your temptation? In a world that minimizes temptation, that minimizes sin, that whatever you feel is okay, it's right, it should be championed. The idea of temptation seems incongruent for our culture. So it would be very easy for all of us to just minimize our temptation, especially because they just come so often. 
So how seriously should we take temptation? Only as serious as Jesus takes it. Right? Only as serious as Jesus takes it. And that's, of course, one of the reasons that the disciples go to him. Because they recognize in themselves that they struggle with temptation. They struggle with taking, uh, uh, they struggle with responding, responding appropriately to temptation. But it's my experience that unless temptation and the temptation that leads to sin is destroying your life or the lives of those around you, most of us are unaware of the true impact that it has. Most of us can't keep up with our own feelings when it comes to what we're being tempted by. And because of that temptation, that is actually building a life different than the one that probably God calls us to, tends to go unaddressed and, and um, tends to go unaddressed. So let me just give two ways that I have experienced Christians experience temptation or the seriousness of temptation. How do, how do spiritual people look at something like temptation? There's just two ways. One is, is that as somebody who's a mature believer who loves to think about doctrine and the things of God, when they think about sin, they tend to hover over it. They tend to think about the systems you might think of, theology and doctrine and church, instead of entering into, uh, enter, in, entering into uh, a more palpable, uh, palpable experience with, with the Savior. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently called The Temptation of the Evangelical Mind. And in the podcast, there's a guy named Joe Thorne. He's a pastor. And he was talking just about this. And he was saying, this is actually my temptation. Um, he says that uh, he recognized in himself and in some of his, his friends that he had a high view of theology. He loved to debate. He loved to talk about polemics. Um, but that his real tempt temptation was to focus on the system rather than the Savior. And then he begins to talk about this book called The Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress, you know, we don't know this book that well, but there was a time where it was the second most published book in, in all of the world. So it, was, it had a tremendous impact, and it's an allegorical tale about Christian. And Christian is on a journey to the celestial city. It's a, it's a story about the Christian life. And in this allegorical tale, Christian encounters uh, characters like faithful or encounters characters like talkative and so they are what they do right and in this one he comes across he's walking with faithful in this one situation and and they meet this guy named talkative and faithful of course is a faithful guy so he's super hopeful always hopeful and they come across talkative and faithful's really excited about him and talk, talkative says this hey we can talk about whatever you will I will talk about heavenly things or earthly things. I'll talk about moral things or things sacred or profane, things past or things to come, things foreign or things at home, things more essential or things circumstantial, provided that all to be done to our profit. And as Christian begins to listen more and more to talk, he begins to see that faithful is more and more enamored by the talk of talking. But we begin to see that Christian sees right through him. Because he'd rather talk about the things of God, rather talk about the Word of God, than rather be a doer of the Word of God. 
he begins to see that he really is a conversationalist, but ultimately all for the wrong reasons. And so this is what this Joe Thorne says. Um, he says about himself, I wanted to know the answers. I wanted to engage in conversation all the time. But I wasn't experiencing the truth that I was talking about myself. I was just arguing about it. There wasn't a piety to my life or a communion with God. And he says, we, we so fall in love with our heritage or our confessionalism that Christ and our communion with him can become secondary. I don't want to be a person who has all the answers. I want to be a person who not only is willing to speak the word of God, but to obey it. Of course, that is absolutely possible for all of us. So we can hover over the word. That's one way we think about temptation, or the one way we deal with temptation. The other is that we simply give in to it. And sometimes we give into it out of hopeful reasons. Because the idea of persevering for so long is too dark. There's an expression, God doesn't give us grace for the hypotheticals. And what that means is that God gives you grace for the circumstance you're in now, but not for tomorrow's circumstance. He will give you what you need for tomorrow, tomorrow, but He will help you today, today. And so uh, one of the reasons that we give in to, to temptation is because we get so overwhelmed with the idea that I can't do this forever. So Mike Emlett, who was one of my uh, professors in, at seminary, he was saying this. He says, um, we give in to temptation because we get tired of fighting the battle. It feels too hard spiritually, emotionally, physically to keep waging war against our flesh. Perseverance is uncomfortable, especially when you're, you've given in to that temptation so many times before. It seems to have more power over you than, you, than, than the fight that you actually have for it. So it's easier to give in and move on rather than continue to resist. The thought of another day, even another hour of wrestling with that insist, insistent and persistent desire is too much to handle. There's a paradoxical relief, however, in succumbing, albeit often with guilt, shame, and other consequences. The spiritual slate is wiped clean. The clock can be reset with a fresh start and fresh resolve, at least in our thoughts. This is... Uh, at least this is a way to come out from the burden of temptation if only for a moment. But what encouragement, he says, does God give us in the throes of this battle when we stand at the cusp of capitulating to the satanic lie that resistance is futile? What help does our gracious Father offer? Many of us know this feeling and just simply giving in, but the, the lie is, is that that is that that's actually helpful and hopeful. Uh, in a life of temptation, the question that we should probably be asking is the third point. Is there a satisfaction from the things that actually tempt me? And what the scriptures teach us is that there is. Absolutely. Here's some practical ones that come through pain and suffering, not just for me, but from, from uh, people upon whose shoulders we all stand on. We can experience satisfaction in understanding why we do what we do. There's satisfaction in having knowledge about my own my own heart and the state of the world. There's uh, you can experience satisfaction in remembering what you've actually overcome. There's satisfaction in knowing I'm not the person I used to be. 
Yes, of course it's debilitating to recognize, to look in the mirror and say, I am still so much like X, Y, and Z, but there's tremendous satisfaction in knowing, oh my goodness, the Lord has changed me. And we can also experience satisfaction in knowing that one day you will actually be free. Free. And because of the work of Christ, what the gospel says is that you can experience aspects of that freedom today, now, in this life. Think about Jesus. How does Jesus interact with temptation? Jesus, who knows every ounce of doctrine, every all theology, top to bottom, does he hover above it? No. He, God comes into earth in Jesus Christ. And he enters into it. Right? Does he, knowing the battles he's going to have to face, just capitulate to it, lay down? He fights it. He fights it. At the very start of his ministry, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then it says what? That he goes into the wilderness, that the Spirit propels him, compels him to go into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness that he has a battle, a great battle, for 40 days. And who does he battle? He battles the one who presented the big apple to Adam and Eve. And he comes as the second Adam, but he doesn't fail. Every time he's tempted, he's, we're showing three temptations, right? He's tempted for bread, he's tempted for power, and he's tempted for, uh, for flame. And each time, what does he do? He looks to this heavenly father. Each time, he actually goes, in a sense, goes through this prayer that we're all leaving, we're all, we've been going through. And he recognizes his father in heaven, and he hallows his name. And he puts in his proper place bread, power, fame, but it's, it's, it's all of his mindset is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are three instances out of 40 days of continual temptation. And a lifetime of temptation in which he never fell. It's an impossible idea apart from the sidewalk. And of course, what does he do? He goes to the cross where his He's tempted to the point of shedding his own blood, but he gladly does it. And what that does for us is we watch the seriousness with which Jesus thinks about our daily temptation to turn from our true father to a false father, to turn from a father of truth to a, a creature of lies. What that does is it moves us and persuades us to, to, to say, when I fight this fight, I'm not fighting alone. When I fight this fight, this is the battle of the universe. This is the greatest fight, the greatest uh, movement of justice anybody could ever be a part of. But he shed his own blood. And what that does is it gives us freedom because when you begin to grow in what's called your sanctification, to greater and greater degrees you're able to stand in the midst of the wilderness, stand in the midst of your temptation and say, not anymore. I'm not persuaded to this like I used to be. You don't have power over me. You know, it's one thing to isolate yourself and say, I can't ever do this. I can't ever stand in this place. I can't live in a city. There's way too many temptations. And another, it's another thing to walk through a city and, and say, yes, these things could tempt me, but they don't. That's freedom. That's satisfaction. It's hard. It's impossible. But you have help. Hebrews 2.18 says this, Because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
He is able to help those who are tempted. Have you shed, in your temptation, have you shed to the point of blood? I have. But you know one who has. And by the power of his blood, by the giving of his spirit, we can be changed in our relationship towards temptation. Because you know what? Here's what's scary. We're closing this. As you grow in the Christian life, you realize your temptations get greater. They get harder in some sense. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian eventually loses this great big pack on his back. Um, he's growing in his faith. Um, he meets people along the way that actually not just hinder him, but actually really further his understanding of God and further his own maturation. And he comes upon this house. And in this house is kind of a church. And it's filled with this interesting family. And they, they encourage him and they care for him. Because they know the journey's hard. And they take him to what's called the armory. And in the armory, they provide him with all kinds of, of uh, tools to help him along the way. It says uh, that he's given a sword and a shield and a helmet and a breastplate and something called all prayer. And he gets, he's given shoes that never wear out. And so he leaves and he feels very well equipped and he goes on to this next stage of, of the journey. But he also realizes that this journey is getting progressively harder and not easier. And then he comes upon this demon. And the demon's name is Apollyon. And the Apollyon knows everything about Christian. And he begins to take Christian's story and turn it on. And he goes through a list of all the things that Christian's been tempted by on that journey. And he begins to twist it and distort it. And he says, you fainted at the beginning of your journey when you were almost choked in the Gulf of Despondency. You attempted to rid yourself of your burden in the wrong way when you should have waited until your prince had taken it off. You sinfully slept and lost your valuable things. Also, you were almost persuaded to go back with the side of the lions. And when you talk about your, your journey and what you've heard and seen, you're inwardly boastful in everything you say and do. And Christian says this. All this is true. And much more that you've actually left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and he's ready to forgive these infirmities controlled me in your country, for there I sucked them in, and I groaned under them, and I've been sorry for them, but I have obtained pardon from my prince. And then Apollyon just rages before him. He says, I'm an enemy of this prince. I hate his person, his laws, his people. I've come here to oppose you. And then Christian, staring at a demon in, in, the, in the path, he says, beware of what you do, Apollyon. For I'm in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed of yourself. Here's a man speaking to the evil one as if he has the authority of God. And that's true of Christians. You know, after they battle, there's a long battle, and Christian's actually deeply wounded. But in his wounds, he comes out stronger. And then it says, Christian feared those dangers. He looks out into a valley where he's going. And says, I, he says, he feared those dangers more before, though he saw them more clearly now. Christian 
do you know where your temptation comes from? Do you know how seriously we should take it? And do you know the satisfaction of walking with a, a God who's forgiven you for all of your temptations and promises? Not only does He forgive you, but He walks with you and in you so that there is nothing that will actually stop Him and nothing will actually thwart you and your ultimate journey towards the celestial city. That's the Christian life. So real quick, you can't do that alone. Christian didn't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need to do it within a community of friends. You know, we're going to start these things called neighborhood groups this, this fall. And what that is, in a sense, it's an armory. It's a place to go and get equipped. It's a, a place to be loved and nurtured and grow in understanding, but not hover over our lives, but to enter into the bonds of our lives together with Christ. So think about that. Think about hosting, think about leading, but most importantly, just think about showing up and being the It's a great and beautiful journey. It's not easy, but it is worth it. It's perfect. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the patience of these people. Lord, would you teach us these things? Let them be true of us too. I pray this in Jesus.